BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasaba, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news newspaper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Friday, January 6th. January 6th. Boy, did that have resonance. Uh, it was two years ago that MAGA lost its freaking mind uh, and stormed the Capitol in order to uh, uh, force with violence Mike Pence uh, and uh, the congressman the Congress people to turn the election over to Donald Trump. Two years have passed, uh, and the news of the day is right back in that Capitol. Uh, MAGA couldn't seize control of the Capitol in, on January 6, 2021, uh, but they have effectively seized control thanks to the electoral process, thanks to the numbskull dimwit Democrats in New York and Iowa who are so confused, so uh, out of touch with reality that they uh, allowed the Republicans to successfully gerrymander them out of existence. Some of the dumbest Democrats that I've ever seen, ladies and gentlemen. I'm a Democrat, a lifelong Democrat. I just sit in dismay at how bad Democrats are playing the game in many instances. And New York Dems, man, you guys are Pathetic. And so we owe this uh, to you, New York Dems. Republicans seized control. They, they did, uh, thanks to New York Dems, what they couldn't do with the siege, and that is take control of the Capitol. Now you got all these nutcase MAGA people forcing Kevin McCarthy to bend over backwards, do back. <laughs> they got this guy, whatever you want, whatever. You want me to put a tattoo of MAGA on my forehead? I'll do that. Please vote for me. They like 13 votes. Every day I've been watching it. They got finally the, like there were 20 that were against. I don't know. It was 19 against them. Then it was 20. And now I think they got like, it's seven. They're down to seven. I want to say they're against them. And he's coming for the mic. We're almost there. We're almost there. And meanwhile, my beloved lefties kind of lost their mind. You know, I love you lefties, but you lost your mind. They're like jealous. Why can't we do stuff like this? Why can't we force <clears throat> what? What do you want to force Hakeem Jeffries to do? You know what I'm saying? Uh, I guess I could think of a lot of things I would like to see. You know, how about a health care plan for all in the United States of America? Whoa, that's pretty radical. But uh, so they got McCarthy. He's agreed. Follow me on this, ladies and gentlemen. One person. That's all it takes. One congressperson can force a vote on speaker. So we can go through this over and over again. 
It'd be like Groundhog Day. Every month, uh, some MAGA nutcase, which, by the way, is redundant. I acknowledge that, MAGA and nutcase. Uh, so some MAGA nutcase uh, will force this uh, <laughs> a new vote. Kevin McCarthy will be, like, bowing down. What more do you want me to do? And then they're putting spin out. This is the, my favorite part of this. They're putting the spin out. They want to make it look like there was a purpose to this as opposed to just a temper tantrum by babies. Uh, and, like, they got something out of it, even though they got nothing new that they didn't already have, like, three days ago. Uh, and they're trying to make it seem like Donald Trump had something to do with it. This is my favorite part. They were like, even though Donald Trump said to Ma the MAGA nutcases, vote for Kevin McCarthy two days ago, and they didn't do it, uh, now they're saying he's really been an influence behind the scenes. They think Americans are so stupid. They have a lower opinion of Americans than Chicago politicians have toward Chicagoans. They think you're so stupid, people. They think that you think that Donald Trump had something to do with like playing the diplomat behind the scenes. Anyway... I got to show this to my distinguished guest. The Washington Post has been dutifully uh, keeping track of all the votes. So distinguished guests, look at this. See, I'm colorblind. I don't know if it comes through, but they have these different colors, like <laughs> the creative department at the Washington Post. So these are all the different Congress people and how they're voting. And so I had to ask my wife, because she's really good at colors and I'm colorblind. Like, so this, I think, distinguished guest, they got red. I don't know if you can see that. If It's, it's not really coming through. That's red for people who oh, voted for McCarthy. It's red, yellow, red, yellow, and purple. Purple, thank you. Although what I can see. Lavender is what I yeah, was. Yeah, what does calling. it look like to you? Lavender. Yeah. Yeah, lavender is like the but you know, for men, that's how you explain lavender. <laughs> <than> <laughs> and most men are colorblind, by the way. I think. Oh Lord, I just it's, I don't know how I get through life. But it's so funny. They had a, you could just, the research department or the graphics department, we have to figure out different colors. And so they like trained Americans to think blue is Democrat and red is Republican. But how do you, how do you depict a Republican who's not voting for the Republicans? So I'm sure they had an all day meeting of this at the graphic arts department at the Washington Post, probably brought in coffee and donuts before they decided they go with lavender. <laughs> lavender. Ah. <sighs> anyway maybe that's the color that you get when you mix uh red and blue because it isn't purple the color that you get when you mix those two colors together yeah but I, I think why? that might be not necessarily lavender but more of a royal purple so here here I'm we thinking, are trying to figure Just, out trying to read the minds <laughs> of unknown people in the Washington Post graphic arts department. Uh, and I'm just trying to think, like, why would they want to depict a mixture of blue and red to depict a MAGA person who in no way resembles a Democrat? I don't know. It's, that's a deep dive uh, into the graphic artist's mind. Um, all right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest who's already sort of introduced herself and everybody knows who she is because you can already read the title uh, of the headline of who she is. But anyway, introduce yourself, distinguished guest. I'm Ramana Hussein. I'm a member of the editorial board and a columnist at the Chicago Sun-Times. Yeah, it's a badass columnist with a capital B. And I've been waiting to have this conversation with Ramana for about, was it two weeks ago, Ramana? Uh, you wrote your column. Uh, about state politics, the games played uh, before uh, in the state house. You took the deep dive, and I I think it was a Sunday. It ran in a bright one, uh, and I called you. We were on the phone. You were driving somewhere, and we like did the show then, only on a phone conversation. So we're now going to recreate the phone conversation. We're also going to discuss. I'm writing this down. I'm saying this so Romano won't let me forget. 
Um, we're also going to discuss the Romeo and Juliet lawsuit. Uh, and that's just a tease, ladies and gentlemen, which I am fascinated by, a mini obsession over this. Uh, and then we're going to take the deep dive on Elizabeth Holmes. Been meaning to do that for a while. I know that's ancient news to a lot of you people out there, but let me just say this. Every day there's a new scam artist coming out. Every day. I just discovered one last night that Armand and I were talking about uh, uh, briefly before the show. Every business world is just crawling with scam artists. So I think uh, it's good. It's never, uh, it's always appropriate to discuss. All right, but first things first. Uh, let's go to your column and which uh, it's kind of an obscure topic, but it has very, it has it's very revealing about the ignorance of politicians in Illinois. Uh, uh, we've already talked about Chicago, about foreign matters and how they're easily influenced. Uh, so why don't you take it away, Romana, and I'll follow you. Go. Yeah. Um, first of all, I have to tell you that I did... Um, this is involving um, the Indian American Advisory Council, which is now being proposed. It's the rules have been, you know, this is already a law, but there's been a trailer bill that's been introduced as a South Asian American Advisory Council for the state of Illinois. Um, yeah, it, it might be obscure for a lot of people, but um, India is home to one billion people, and the United States has a lot of Indian Americans, I should say, people of Indian descent in this country. And uh, the politics of India right now, uh, we talk about MAGA here in the United States. Um, what's happening in India, there's also um, a right-wing wave of um, nationalists in India who are kind of fighting against, you know, or at least kind of trying to uh, silence the voices of the religious minorities in India. Um, then the Muslims, uh, most of the Muslim population and, you know, my family comes from India and we are part of the Muslim population. You know, my family has been part of the Muslim population in India. Obviously, my parents came here. But, um, you know, the Muslims are the largest population, um, of the largest minority population in India. And, you know, anybody who's kind of read history, the history of India knows that, you know, there's obviously Sikhs in India. There's Christians in India. There's also Jewish people in India. Um but there's been a lot of tension between the in uh, the Hindus and the Muslims, and you know, obviously not everybody. You know, everybody has friends from different religious groups. But you know, in the past years, we've seen a lot of communal tension. You know, where both groups are kind of you know, you know, when India was created, both groups were to be blamed for the violence that was caused. But in more recent years, there's definitely a rise of you know right wing Indians who are trying to attack the Muslim minority in India, um, population in India. And, and this, this um, kind of manifests itself in laws and in um, just the way, um, you know, politicians are talking about Muslims. Um, and it, it's very discriminatory for people who are kind of following this. And most Americans are pretty um, not really knowledgeable about what's happening. And when you do explain it to them, especially politicians, including <laughs> the ones in city hall, um, they pretend that they don't, they, they pretend that it's really confusing and they don't understand it. So um, I have to tell you that um, some Indian Americans that I know who had tried to pass a resolution about um, denouncing what was happening in India. And I wrote a long column about that, but I don't have to get in, in touch with that, but there's a large group of Indian Americans or in Chicagoans who are Indian in 
in the area who are kind of keeping track of this thing because they feel that this right wing influence in India is influenced the politics here. And it, it definitely has if you pay attention to it. Anybody who's Indian or South Asian who's been paying attention to it, attention to it have been noticing it. And it's in very subtle ways. Like, you know, the Indian Council resolution, you know, the city council resolution was a very minor resolution. Like this was a resolution that said, hey, what's happening in India is wrong. But the Indian Council got involved and it became this big thing that took months and months to finally go before the city city council. And uh, it's a, it was a very minor thing in a lot of people's views. But the fact that it got voted down told, you know, basically meant a lot to a lot of people who are kind of paying t- attention to this. So a lot of people feel that the politicians here aren't really paying attention to this and they're being swayed by right wing Indians here. So anyway, flash forward to like, you know, a couple months ago. In the spring, there was an Indian American um, council. Um, I guess let me let me give you the exact title. <clears throat> it was the um, Indian American Advisory Council that was being formed. Now, there's like a zillion of these councils that are formed in uh, the state of Illinois, and uh, this was proposed. This the form this council was proposed right after there was a Muslim American Advisory Council proposed. So this. This, this basically this resolution to create this body was formed, you know, the Pritzker ends up signing it, it was passed, you know, there was no questions asked, it was passed pretty quickly. And, you know, most people are probably didn't read the resolution. But, um, you know, when you look at it closer, the second paragraph, um, I don't know, I think this, you know, just the, the history behind this shows that we should read what we're passing. This, the second um, paragraph of this Indian American Advisory Council resolution basically has the sentence about, I'll read what the sentence actually says. It's, it's basically, it's a group formed, you know, it's, it's, it, this is supposed to be a group of Indians informing uh, the governor, you know, what things need to be done in the community. So this is what they def- how they define Indian in this, um, in this resolution or in this law that's currently present right now. It said, quote, Indian means a person descended from any of the countries of the subcontinent that are not primarily Muslim in character, including India, Bhutan, Nepal, and Sri Lanka. Um, so if you, anybody reads that, it's it's kind of, um, it's kind of misleading and it conflates India with South Asia. And in not shockingly, it excludes all the Muslim majority countries in South Asia and those Muslim American uh, countries. Um, I mean, Muslim countries, Muslim majority countries include, uh, you know, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Afghanistan and uh, the Maldives. And, uh, you know, so a lot of people recognize this and they contacted Ram Vilivalam, who was the state sponsor of this uh, resolution. And he admitted to me that he should have read this much closer. So he admitted it was a mistake. Seth Lewis, meanwhile, is the one who came up with this bill. He's the person, um, (coughs) he's a state um, representative. And so we kind of had a very colorful um, conversation. And I, I kept asking him who came up with that sentence, because you know, I feel like the sentence, if you read it, it's trying to say that Indians 
Muslims can't be Indians. Like it's, it's, it's like a very subtle way of saying like, you know, it, it, I think it's like a subliminal way for Americans who don't know that much about India to feel like, well, Indians are this and um, they can't be Muslim. And I have to tell you, Ben, growing up, I, a lot of people are pretty ignorant about the history of India and, you know, India, when India was formed, um, you know, we all know this, you know, most of us who read history, especially Indians like me, we know that India um, became carved up after independence and uh, Pakistan was created. It was a Muslim majority country and um, East Pakistan was created, which is now present day Bangladesh. Both of those countries are Muslim majority and India is a Hindu majority. And, you know, this these obviously stay, um, countries were carved up among, you know, religious lines. But if you pay attention, there were people who migrated to different countries. There are a lot of people from the different religions you know, who didn't move there, you know, in Pakistan, the Hindu population is very, very small. But in India, the Muslim population is huge. I mean, we're 12 to 15% of a population. Um, India's population, we know is 1 billion plus from the last time I remember. So 12 to 15% is still pretty large. And growing up, whenever I would tell people I was Muslim, and then that I was Indian, they would always get confused and start scratching their heads and go, should you be Pakistani? <laughs> like, aren't you? How could you be Indian and Muslim? And I think this is just you know, the, if you pay attention to what's happening in India, people are trying to erase the Muslim history, you know, Muslim, the Muslim language, you can barely find it, a lot of things in Urdu written anymore. So there's this push. It's kind of like um, what we see in America, where like, you don't want to, you want to ignore certain parts of the history and say, well, America is only white America. Well, in India is a lot different than that. There's a lot of different groups. There's a lot of different, you know, our cultures are very similar, obviously, but even state by state, people are different. So I I wasn't originally going to do this story, but, um, you know, I, I kind of felt like, oh, this, there's more to this story. And so I kind of started digging into it. And, um, you know, Ram Vellum, the state senator, you know, these uh, Indian American activists contacted him and told him about the problem they had with the language. And he admitted that, you know, it was a mistake and it should have never been passed. So um, I also called Seth Lewis and he got a little testy. He would not tell me who came up with that language. Um, he was very, um, you know, he started fighting with me about or arguing with me about Bangladesh because he said that there's no South. He said that there's only one Muslim majority country in South Asia and that's um, Pakistan. And I'm like, well, no, not really. And when I met, then when I mentioned Bangladesh, she started having this argument with me about how it's not a Muslim majority country. And I thought that was very telling. I'm like, okay, so you're the person who came up with the idea to create this Indian American Advisory Council, but you don't even know the basics about this region. And so about, you know, about India and how it was created. So it's like, you're the person behind this. And, you know, I told him, I'm like, listen, I'm Indian and I'm Muslim. And I know, you know, I told him, I know, you know, I know my history and I know what's happening. And he's like, well, I'm married to an Indian woman. And of course, like, you know, I have to tell you, a lot of people thought, you know, that a light bulb kind of went in their heads about maybe someone who had told him how to write this um, resolution. But Seth Lewis would never tell me who wrote this resolution. But I think what's interesting and what made me want to write about this is that this went before the um, the Senate. Was it the Senate? Did it go before the Senate? Yeah, it went before the state Senate. And then there was at least there was, I think, 
three people who voted against. They changed it. So Ron Billy Vollum put up a South Asian American Advisory Council trailer bill to change to get rid of that language and just say, hey, this is a South Amer- Asian um, American Advisory Council. So we'll have people from all different parts of South Asia be part of this, you know, group, including Indians and all these other people. And so interestingly enough, there was like nine people who abstained from voting and three people, including the Republican gubernatorial candidate, Darren Bailey, who didn't want to vote for this. But meanwhile, they were unanimously approving it when they had this discriminatory language. So that kind of made a light bulb go in my head. And I'm like, what's going on here? You know, I mean, who's influencing who? And I have to tell you, Ben, you know, there are Indians, uh, reporters um, overseas who have picked up on the story. And uh, there's this progressive uh, news outlet called The Quint. The reporter reached out to me and he's been trying to reach, um, you know, the state senator and the state, uh, you know, in Seth Lewis to find out more about this because this got them interested. And I'm like, and, and they haven't been returning his calls. That's what he was telling me. And I'm like, oh, they probably never thought it'd go all the way to India. And he's like, well, they're trying to define what who an Indian is like how do they not think that anybody from India is going to pay attention to this so it's gotten that I have to tell you it's gotten my story has gotten the attention of people overseas who are um looking at this and uh they thought it was pretty interesting that, and that, um I, yeah go ahead <clears throat> yeah go ahead no I was going to say that was the case with your last story I mean uh Ramana this is the second if you I know uh, the listeners know this uh the second time as you said earlier you address the issue of the sort of the uh, the politicization process here uh, in Illinois and Chicago as uh, Illinois and Chicago politicians. Uh, I, I don't even know if struggle is the right word because I'm not sure they're conscious and aware of it. But the reality is that uh, there are very fierce uh, political maneuverings going on throughout the world. Um, I mean, in Israel right now, there's a huge debate about what is a Jew. Uh, and uh, we talk about Kevin McCarthy ceding control uh, to some of the, the lunatics uh, in MAGA and giving them what they want in uh, to keep his government uh, together, to keep his speakership alive. Uh, Netanyahu has done that in Israel, uh, making deals with extremists in Israel who are now trying to define uh, Orthodox extremists. What if, are you Jewish? You can't be Jewish unless you meet this standard and that standard and uh, very controversial, very provocative, very upsetting. It's a, it's something that's a heated argument among American Jews right now. Okay. I mean, I would assume most non-Jews couldn't care less about this or not paying any attention to it, but it's very similar. I see a lot of parallels, Ramana, to what's going on in India where you have a Hindu majority country and they kind of want to excise Muslims from the picture like they don't exist. Uh, and so the what part of the reason they're doing that is like this is completely what I would call gratuitous. That line in there that says um, uh, mentions Muslims. There's no need to mention Muslims at all. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and so it's their way, I think, of establishing sort of what a foothold uh, in Illinois politics where they move their biases uh, into the mainstream of political thought in America. And it's not that hard to do because I'm not making, saying I'm better than anybody else in this one, Ramon. I only know this stuff because you're come on my show every other week and you're constantly educating me. But most Americans have no 
clue as to what's going on in India, and they don't realize. Now, Rahm should have known better. Okay, the state senator from the northwest side of Chicago, he should have known better, but he apparently, I mean, I he just didn't read the bill, okay? Um, what Seth Lewis is up to, who's a MAGA man from the suburbs, uh, right-wing Republican, oh, that's redundant. I, I don't know, man. It, I don't know what's going on in his brain. But to go so far as to say Bangladesh is not a Muslim country, when you told me that, um, actually, I read it in your column. When you told me that, but we talked about it, I, while you were on the phone, I looked it up on Wikipedia. Like the first sentence in Wikipedia, is, you know what I'm saying? And then he's arguing with you. And I, I think, Romana, this is more important than uh, most Americans would realize because, again, they're, like, there's the potential of bloodshed, uh, fighting in India. You've seen it flare up. Nationalist fighting, you know, not it's I've I've seen it happen in the Balkans, I've seen it happen in Rwanda, I've seen it happen in India. And I just feel that uh, Americans should be really aware about what's going on in, uh, outside of their little box before they get involved with something that even is as seemingly as innocuous as uh, the sub the subcommittee or this advisory committee. That's my thoughts on your reaction. Yeah, no, for sure. And that's, that's the thing that bothers me. It's like, this is the third time I've actually written about it. Because remember, the, I think it was over the summer, where there was this like, Peter Frederick, this activist came to Chicago to talk about, um, you know, he confronted Roger Krishnamurthy about um, some of his um, questionable ties to um, some people who are BJP RSS. These are right wing Indian nationalists. And you know, all these Democrats jumped on board and they were like started talking and spouting out against this guy, not knowing or not even paying attention to what's happening. And so it's upsetting to a lot of Indian people that Americans, they feel like Americans are choosing to be, be ignorant about this subject matter and not opening their eyes. And, you know, Americans like, you know, I, I know, Ben, you didn't watch this um, documentary because you said it would be really painful for you to watch, but the documentary on the Holocaust was just terrible, but it starts with the language and that's how people become dehumanized by the language that you use and excluding them from certain groups. And Ben, I guarantee you, and I, you know, I'm saying this as a Muslim American because I've seen the double standards be applied to Muslims and other religious groups. When Muslims are, when there are Muslims who are um, extremist or are not tolerant of other faiths, it's like a huge news story. Like, oh, those tolerant Muslims are crazy and like this and that. Meanwhile, other religions, including, you know, other religious individuals, and I'm not saying Christians are, you know, bigoted. I'm not saying Hindus are bigoted, Buddhists are bigoted. As a group, they aren't, but there are right-wing factions in all of these organizations. But most of these groups get a pass. You know, and this is why we have what we have in the United States today, because right wing Christians have been given a pass all these years. In India, people always talk about how India is this great secular country, but they don't pay attention to what's happening and the discrimination when it's against Muslims. So I just think that Muslims have been dehumanized for a long time in this country. So when there is discrimination against us, like no light bulb goes off in people's heads like, oh, whoa. Why is this language even in this bill? Like, this sounds crazy. 
like it, that light bulb should go off with everybody. And, you know, just watching the documentary um, that Ken Burns made, you know, at the end, you know, they're talking to all these Jewish Americans and saying, and they're all saying these are relatives of people who survived the Holocaust or died in the Holocaust. And they're like, you know, it's very easy for something like this to happen again. And, you know, we don't pay attention. We say never again, but it, it is happening. You know, people, I think people can be dehumanized very easily. And it always starts with language. And that's what's happening in India. And I care about India. I care about the United States because I'm an American. I was born here. And India is the country of my parents' birth. So um, for like, you know, whenever I hear anti-Muslim sentiment here in the United States and I hear about it overseas, I am going to take it personally, especially, you know, especially when it comes to India, because those are very close and personal to me. Like, so it's a it's a topic I'm going to kind of keep my eye on. And I have to give a shout out to a young WBZ reporter named Indira Kara. Kara, hopefully I'm not pronouncing her name. She's a young fellow at, I think she's a fellow, I think I'm using the right title, at WBZ. And we've kind of been, you know, she kind of started focusing on this a few months back. And she was telling me how her some of her editors weren't understanding everything. I actually asked her before I wrote the column, like, you know, you don't care if I take this on, do you? Because she only touched upon it a little and she was going to wait for it to go before the House, which I don't think it's passed yet. It was supposed to be earlier this week. And so I'm kind of going to keep an eye on what's happening because... I do think that these things are very important, um, especially when we have a large Indian American population in the United States. It's something that we're all paying attention to. And there are stories, if you if you Google, you know, one of the things that made me laugh when the city council members were like, oh, we don't understand that much about India. I'm like, all you gotta do is Google it. And, and, and I know Ben, you're very used to it, uh, the city council, city council members um, display or you know, pretending, pretending to be ignorant. It, it, you know, I, I used to follow, I used to cover city, uh, city council, the city council for, um, city news bureau. So I had gotten away from it from a long time, actually watching aldermen and older women discuss things. And it just, it just blew my mind listening to this discussion. So if nobody else is going to cover this, I feel like, you know, the only people are there who are truly paying attention to this are Indians. And so I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep track pushing to like, you know, see what's happening. And I think people, I do have a lot of people in different corners who are kind of watching this stuff happen. And uh, I think you're going to hear, be hearing more about it. Yeah. And I encourage you to do that. And I'll just, as the old guy in the room, uh, it's any uh, younger journalist listening. I encourage each and every one of you uh, to take an issue, champion that issue. Don't let that issue die. I've said this once a million times, I'll say it again and again, you can't write an article once and then let it go. That means nothing. You have to come back to it time and time again. You can't worry if people make fun of you for, uh, quote unquote, beating a <laughs> dead horse. I, that's you know? what I worry. I'm like, oh no, they're going to be like, oh, you let care them. about these little let things. Let them make fun but, of you. Yeah. Let them make fun of you. It's an important issue. Uh, you're the only one covering it. It's not your fault. You're the only one covering it. And uh, if the other reporters don't want to cover it, that's their business. But I do believe it's an important issue. Uh, I do believe that the sing signals that America sends out to the rest of the world uh, about what's tolerable and acceptable behavior uh, matter. Uh, even if it's, again, it's relatively innocuous advisory council. I agree. Uh, it's an important symbol. And people are paying attention to what we do in Chicago, in India, in other countries. It'll be headline news like, what? My God, what did they do? In what is this bill that did X, Y, Z? 
And Chicagoans go, what? I didn't know what I did. Uh, so no, just I you keep going. It's my advice to you and every young journalist out there. Don't stop with one article. Don't stop with two articles. Don't stop. Keep going. That's the only way you're going to make any progress. Uh, that's my old man advice. Yeah, it's day. like it's like you and tips. So sorry to all your listeners who probably heard me ranting and ra- railing about this, but it's a very Actually, important issue. You get a to lot me. of uh, that. I'm not doing it as forty clicks, but there's a lot. You'd be surprised how many people listen to your in our India uh, co- uh, conversations. I'm. I would do it anyway, but yeah, there are people out there who care. So, all right, let's move on to something that seems even more trivial, but I, I would argue that it's not. Uh, and this is a story that broke of, I saw this a couple of days ago and immediately texted it to Ramana and guess what? She'd already seen it. Uh, <laughs> got to get up early to beat Ramana. Uh, but this, I saw it, it was a Washington post article about a lawsuit filed uh, in Hollywood on November, oh, excuse me, December 31st, the end of the year. By uh, two actors. It's so dark now, I can't read. Olivia Hussey and Leonard uh, Whitting. Is that how he pronounces his name? So, all right, ladies and gentlemen, let me just back up a little bit. Uh, back in the 60s, these two were um, glamorous movie stars. Uh, they were like um, uh, teen heartthrobs, very gorgeous a, a young man. Uh, Kids, really, 18 and 17, uh, and they were cast in a movie, Romeo and Juliet, Franco Zeffirelli's hit movie from, I think it was 1967 or 68. Uh, huge hit. I was a kid in junior high back then. Romana wasn't even born yet. Uh, but uh, our whole junior class, high class was schlepped out. I think we saw it at the Old Orchard, the Old Old Orchard movie theater uh, uh, in Skokie. I love wow. Skokie. Uh, one of my favorite suburbs. Anyway, uh, we saw it there. And in this scene, there was nudity. Uh, in this movie, there was nudity, I should say. Uh, and you saw briefly uh, Romeo's butt. Uh, and you saw Juliet's butt. And also a little chest. And the guys, oh my God, the 13-year-olds, the 12-year-olds, the Nickel Junior High, we were just beyond ourselves. Uh, and here we are, all these years later, they're... Uh, Olivia Hussey is now 72 and Leonard Whitting is 71. I may have it reversed, but that's how old they are. They're in their early 70s. No, she, she was filed, younger. She was, se- she's she younger. was 71. So she's 71. And, they filed and just a $100 so got, million dollar lawsuit. Go ahead. Ron, 500. Take, I read somewhere there was 500 million. But, uh, um, according to the story, it's 100 million, but go ahead. Oh, okay. But it is, it's a multi-million dollar lawsuit. Oh, and the ages, just so you know, she was 15 and he was 16. Yeah, when 15 and 16. For at least, here's what it says. The stars of the 68 film, Romeo and Juliet, are suing Paramount Pictures for at least $100 million. So over a new scene film when they were teenagers. I am all over the map with this. Uh, I'll give you my thoughts and then you weigh in with yours. Uh, on the one hand, they were young. They were under age of 18. And I do believe that borders on uh, exploitation. That is exploitation, in my humble opinion. It's a form, kind of form. I just want to say this, folks. A little pornographic, okay? Guys getting into looking at young, naked people. Uh, it was, uh, no pun intended here, a naked attempt uh, to bring in uh, dummies like me, the 12-year-old and 13-year-old me, to see a movie that we might not otherwise see because we could see a glimpse of a really beautiful actress's breasts. And so, I don't know, that kind of exploitation, in my opinion. It's one thing if she's 21, 22, 23, 24. It's another thing when she's 17 
Romana. Uh, so I do think it's exploitation. On the other hand, I'm running out of hands here, Romana. Um, she didn't complain at the time. And uh, she gave interviews. Uh, Olivia Hussey did afterwards. And said it was art. Uh, it was necessary for to really get through a certain theme. And uh, she defended the director, defended the movie. And now here, all of a sudden, uh, what is it? Fifty years later, we're on the. Uh, there's a law in California giving people one last chance before the end of this year. Uh, before the statute of limitations is completely eradicated, uh, to file suit. And it's it's the same suit that somebody took advantage of to file against Harvey Weinstein. Uh, he was convicted of uh, rape. Uh, and um, so at the last minute, they filed their suit seeking $100 million. I'm like, I don't know about this law. All of a sudden, now you're looking for a payout after you went along with it all these years. Uh, that was kind of where I am with it. Um, do you think I'm being too unfair to, uh, Leonard, uh, Whitting and Olivia Hussey? Mm, I, I see where you're going. I, I see where you're coming from. Um, first of all, I have to tell you that we saw that movie in high school. I was a freshman in my honors English class. And I remember, I don't think they showed Olivia Hussey's, but I think it was just her breasts. And I think it was Romeo's butt because everybody heard about that before we watched it. And it was really funny because I had this like great English teacher. She was really sweet. And she was like, she was pretending that she was going to try to stop, stop the scene before, you know, I mean, stop the video or fast forward before those scenes came on. So she was, she was pretending she was running and she came too late and she's like, Oh no, I missed it. And I think she was just kind of like playing around with us. But, um, I, I do remember that movie vividly, but, you know, I was younger than both actors at the time. So I didn't really think about it, like how young they were and, you know, the fact that they were naked on screen or they, you know, showed them on screen. Um, so honestly, I don't know why <clears throat> you would show someone that young naked at that age. Um, it To me, it's something that I would never do. And I know like in the 60s and 70s, there were fewer rules about that. Now, when we look back and see how Brooke Shields was exploited at a very young age and, you know, people kind of ogling her body, you know what I mean? It's, it's just crazy. <clears throat> and yeah, it's pretty twisted. And, you know, you, you know, read about child pornography and, you know, all these like, you know, that it's exploitation at, at the very least. And probably at that time, it wasn't considered that. Um, Olivia Hussey was interviewed in 2018. And so this is where some of the comments you mentioned, it's a little, dis there's a little discrepancy there because, you know, the lawsuit says that they were assured that they would not be shown naked in the film. And then the director told them like last minute, like if we don't show it, the movie's not going to do well. And they kind of felt like they were cornered into the situation. Um, so this is 2018. So it's, you know, the Me Too situation you know, we've been talking about already. So I'm pretty sure, didn't Me Too 2016, 2017? So she was asked this in 2018 and she was like, she said something like she was defending it and saying that it was tastefully done. So my question is, and I'm not saying that these actors didn't suffer at all or didn't feel humiliated. Um, Cause I think they said that they were, it kind of like haunted them for the rest of their lives. And you know, and I'm not saying I'm not taking that away from them, but at the same time, it's like, did she feel like she had to say that, you know, because the director was still alive then. 
because I think um was it Franco Zeffirelli? Like he, I think he died in um twenty nineteen. So yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I mean, I don't know if anything's going to come out of this lawsuit, but it was a big news story. I mean, as soon as it came out, I I sent it to my siblings because we all were made to watch that movie. Like we all read Romeo and Juliet freshman year and we all saw the movie. So I think a lot of high schoolers were shown this movie at the time. And, you know, and I wonder now if like people don't show it anymore because they were underage. So I, I don't know if their high school curriculums anymore, you know, you know, actually have this on the agenda because when I was in high school, that was that everybody was talking about it. And then I remember we saw Romeo and he didn't age that well. And then we're like, oh, too bad. But I remember Olivia Hussey still looked good in the 80s. But I remember someone found a People magazine where they found Romeo and he didn't age that well. But, you know, I, I do feel for them on one hand. I, I'm, I'm with you, Ben. But on the other hand, it's like, um, well, you know, especially in the case of Olivia Hussey, where she was defending it, I think not once, but twice. Like she was interviewed by two different places. I think it was the 50th anniversary a couple. Yeah, because it came out in 68. So it was the 50th anniversary in 2018. And that's when she was asked about it. And she was kind of saying, well, she it was it was fine. I had no problem with it. And so you kind of wonder, like, I, I'm just curious as to know what changed and what made them change their mind. Did they sit down and talk about it? Because um, one of the things, I don't know, you're not a Gen Xer, I know that, but um, Molly, Molly Ringwald a couple of years, Molly Ringwald a couple of years ago. Okay. I'm a Gen Xer and, you know, I grew up in the Northern suburbs, so I watched all the John Hughes movies, but she, there, she had a, wrote a really great piece in the New Yorker a couple of years ago where she met up with, um, one of the young actress in uh, in 16 Candles and they're still good friends. And she kind of played the bullying pretty girl. And, uh, you know, there were rape jokes about her in the movie. And, you know, at the time I was when a teenager, when I saw it, I was in eighth grade and, you know, I didn't think anything of it. And so they both kind of sat down and they talked about the movies that they made and that movie in particular, I think they talked about and a lot of the things that they did when they look back, they kind of cringe. These are John Hughes movies that were really popular. And, you know, it, it was, I thought it was a really good piece. I think everybody I know that grew up at that time period, read these stories. And, you know, some people are telling me that when they watch these movies with their kids, they're kind of like shocked at some of the stuff that got passed. And so, um, you know, it's like she was someone that, you know, Molly Ringwald is someone that like caught on pretty quick. And I'm just wondering what why these two actors didn't say anything. Any, anything well, OK, sooner. so I mean, I, I, not, I, I shouldn't say sooner because things can come up later. But well, I, I'll put it this way. You know, this is why I said before, I'm really all over the map with this thing. So having said everything I said about them, uh, uh, complimenting the movie, uh, praising the movie and now filing the suit. I realize, I recognize that if you're a victim uh, and you're up against a powerful person, a powerful institution, uh, and your career is at stake, uh, your livelihood's at stake, you have to go along with stuff. I recognize that. I know that. And so, like, when you get to these, uh, like, the Harvey Weinstein cases uh, and the defense shows like, text that um, uh, a woman uh, uh, who is uh, alleging rape or sexual assault made praising Harvey Weinstein. They go, oh, how could we believe anything she said? She wrote this. I'm like, oh, no. I know what that's like 
when Hollywood, official Hollywood, is just laughing at Harvey Weinstein like it's a joke, when Meryl Streep and everybody's just going along with it like they don't see it right out their face, where they're pretending that it's, you know, it's not happening. If you speak out, you're through. You're the one who's going to be exiled. So if somebody, they could, it could really be painful to them, even if they, they're forced to say one thing uh, and not believe it. So I know that's a reality. I know that's a reality in the world. And I'm, I'm, I don't want to dismiss uh, Olivia Hussey's allegation that this was very traumatic because she gave interviews. But those interviews, as you pointed out, were just <laughs> four years ago. Uh, you know, so this one's a little, this one, uh, I'm, I'm going to watch this one unfold. Uh, see yeah, where it goes uh, for sure. I, I, like you said, it was 2018. So I feel like, you know, the awareness I mean, this should have always been, people should have always been aware, but I think the Me Too movement kind of made people look back and think like, oh God, I laughed this off. And how could I laugh this off? And people realizing that there were victims when they weren't. Because sometimes when you're a victim, you think it's, you don't really pick it up on that point, especially when you're a young child. So um, yeah, I'm probably going to be, I think it made a lot of headlines, I think, because everybody watched that movie. And and I did, I did also read that both actors never, like that was the, their claim to fame. Like they never really had that many opportunities after that. Like they had a few, but they, they never became like names that we recognize, you know, they were, they never became household names. They were, you know, they were always Romeo and Juliet and kind of stuck in those. Yeah. Rooms. And like so they're claiming that the, who we knew the, them as. Yeah, the nude scene uh, thwarted their career. I don't, I don't know about that. You know what? There's a lot of actors and actresses uh, that have great roles. Uh, I'm thinking now of uh, uh, Louise Fletcher, who played Nurse Rashid in uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, tremendous actress, uh, great performance, won an Oscar. And she, I don't think she ever got a leading role again. She was a working actress for most of her life. Uh, and God bless her for that. She passed last year. Um, so it's hard to say, you know what I mean? When you're talking about an actor, like what influenced people, it, it was because the people would always see her as nurse ratchet, uh, that she never got like a great role um, again. Or yeah. Role. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying that they never got any roles, but I'm just saying that they never, like, that's what they became known for. Right. And yeah, yeah. Nurse rat. I never, I have to tell you, I never saw one flew over the, flew over the cuckoo's nest. So, Whoa. <laughs> mind I know, blown. I know, I know everything about the movie, oh but I know God. about her too. But no, of course, people still like you can be a great actor and you know never like you make one movie and nobody ever like you're doing all these you know you're working on Broadway, you're like in, doing theater. So I'm not saying that their careers totally like took a nosedive, but I'm just saying that they never really were household names. Like you know they weren't the big stars of the '60s or '70s. They were just Romeo and Juliet for me, for someone like me. That's right. who I know, how I knew them. So we're going to close with a little uh, Elizabeth Holmes talk. And uh, Romano is way ahead of me on this, I must confess. Uh, as everybody who listens to my show knows, I went out to Cali for the last week of the, the year to be with my family. And yeah, I got COVID. Uh, so I was in isolation uh, for a good chunk of the time. I'm not complaining, though, because I binge-watched The Dropout. Uh, and uh, I watched Glass Onion twice. Not once, twice. So I guess you could say I took advantage of it. I became instantly obsessed uh, with um, 
the dropout and the Elizabeth Holmes story, which is a story I must, I also must confess I missed in real time. Elizabeth Holmes, of course, the con artist who, uh, who created a company that she claimed would revolutionize and change the world for blood testing. It was really a hoax. They were manufacturing results. They never, uh, they never achieved close to the success that they had. Uh, and yet she convinced so many wealthy people to give her startup money, invest in it. To one point, she was one of the wealthiest women in America. Uh, and she got all these distinguished old white men to join her board. And this the part, you know, like George Schultz and Henry Kissinger. And I'm like, what is the what in the world is going on in our country? Our love for wealth, our just obsession with capitalism, Romana. There's like the belief that if you're rich, you're somehow or other, you're like a gifted person. I, I'm just, I have to admit, I'm outside of this, outside of this world. I'm looking into it. It's sort of like me looking at MAGA going, I don't understand these people at all, <laughs> okay? And I, similarly, I don't understand the adoration our country has for wealth. I'm not hating on what rich people. I'm just saying I don't automatically love you because you're rich. Help me out here, Romana. You saw the documentary. You listened to the podcast. You probably know the story better than I do. Why were so many people taken by Elizabeth Holmes? Well, Ben, I think there's a lot of things going on here. I don't think it's just rich, wealthy white people that everybody jumps on board with and starts agile, you know, just getting all goo-goo and gaga. I just feel like there's just, there's like a lot of things going on here. Um, I feel like we are living in a culture where people can, you know, there's social media out there. Branding is a big thing that we all talk about. People talk about branding themselves. There are some people who are really good at branding themselves. And, you know, one person says that they're wonderful and then it has to be the right person. And if it's the right person who says you're wonderful, then people start not everyone, not everybody buys into it because if you follow their Elizabeth Holmes stories, there was people that quickly caught on that she was a fraud, including her professors in college and um, her coworkers. And so, you know, I feel like if there's like one person who's, you know, I guess has a reputation, you know, other people who, you know, are are kind of walking around in the same circle, they all start drinking the Kool-Aid and start believing this person's, you know, myth or this like mythology that they created. With Elizabeth Holmes, it's it's kind of sad because, I mean, it's really sad, I should say, because she started this company with this promise that there's going to test people and show them what sort of ailments they have by a prick of a pin. And I have to tell you, so I, I listened to The Dropout. My niece told me to listen to the podcast, which the show The Dropout is based on. And I also watched the documentary. And I have to tell you, one of my magazines that I read, uh, a fashion women's fashion magazine, I remember when she was put in, like there was a profile, a glowing profile on her. Um, you know, it, it was like a whole section on women entrepreneurs. And she was like, you know, Bill Clinton, like, talked about her, introduced her at an event. I mean, she was like on, you know, people were just putting her on this pedestal. So I just feel like, I just feel that there's a culture of um, the culture personality that's kind of like been exaggerated these last few years. And you talked a little bit about Harvey Weinstein. I mean, who can forget when Harvey Weinstein um, was a big name 
And, you know, then it turns out he was this like person that was like sexually, um, you know, assaulting all these actresses and all these women. And he was this terrible person. But so for all these years, people were just kind of quiet about it or like, and I'm not talking about the victims, but people who knew about the allegations, they kind of sat there and, and applauded him. Right. And so I think that's what we saw with Elizabeth Holmes. And I kind of see this on all levels, Ben. I just don't see it with rich people. I see it with everyday people. I even seen it in our business, you know, where one person says like, oh, so-and-so is like this great journalist. And I'm like, um, no, they're not. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, you kind of know what they're like, but because they have this image and one person on Twitter goes, oh, I love this person's article. Then everybody else jumps in and talks about how wonderful this person is. And then you're just kind of like, when, <laughs> when you're one of those people who kind of like work with them and know that they weren't like the best reporter or writer, you're just kind of like, okay. And you don't want to say anything because you don't want to be the jerk, right? So you just kind of say, sit there and be quiet. So I think it's a branding thing. This is what our culture is. It's like branding. And I heard people say things like, you got to fake it till you make it. So people say things like that more and it's more acceptable now to do. And I have to tell you, Ben, just watching the Elizabeth Holmes documentary and just the way she changed her voice, to me, I just thought she sounded a little unhinged. And I, and, you know, I could be wrong. Like maybe I'm just, I, I can sometimes pick up on things and I'm like, I don't know how people couldn't see through her. And then, you know, even Walgreens, you know, Walgreens like, you know, bought her machines and it turns out these machines weren't working, you know, what she promised these machines. And there were a lot of people who were sick or not sick. And they got like, you know, she sent out tests telling them that they had cancer or that they were pregnant when they weren't or they miscarried when they weren't. So, you know, she was playing with a lot of people's lives. And it's and it's like, I don't know if you're following the court case. And this wasn't just her. I mean, she, it was her and her partner, her former boyfriend, Sonny Balwani. And of course, all the Indians there's an Indian twist to this. Everything has an Indian twist to it. He was this guy who was like, I got, I want to say two decades her senior. And he was kind of, you know, I think they were kind of, they kind of like went after each other during the trial. And, and I don't know if you saw Elizabeth Holmes, you know, her hair. I mean, I know I'm being superficial, but I, you know, her just looking at her hair, like when she was like the head of the Theranos company, I was like, okay, something's going on with her hair. Any woman would be like, what is going on? This is, there's something off. And then it was really interesting, like during the trial, she totally changed her hairstyle. And then she talked, she's still talking in this low voice and it seems so fake. I'm like, how could you think that this is this woman's voice? And then, you know, all of a sudden her voice became really high, you know, like a, you know, more high pitched. So I don't know, for me, you know, I did read about her and this was before all these allegations, you know, not allegations, but the truth came out. Um, and, you know, I was just like, it was just in the back of my mind. I'm like, oh, this woman created this, like, you know, this revolutionary, you know, machine. But then it's like, it was a fraud and it went on for so long. And it's, it's sad that people can believe in this, but I'm just saying it just shows you how people can easily trick people. And it happens a lot more often in all, in all areas of life. And it's not just rich people. I think it's all over the place in terms of workplaces, in terms of people you meet. Like people have this, you know, people can create an image very easily if they want to. Yeah. Well, let me put it to you this way. Um, this is, uh, this is my lefty take. You get a rich person, uh, like a Kenny Griffin type, spent all that money trying to elect Bruce Rauner or Bruce Rauner spent all that money electing himself, uh, or, you know, uh, 
and they're just they just they hate uh giving their money away uh as they see it in taxes like they hate the notion of a common good and uh and contributing to the common good they despise they absolutely despise unions they don't think that people who work for them should have the right to to collectively bargaining and use their power and their numbers uh, to force concessions. They don't want to have to like meet those. I'm watching this thing going on with Starbucks and Howard Schultz. He just like he he, he cannot uh, sort of acknowledge that the people who work at Starbucks are more or less his peers. If you think of it in that term, no, no, you're lucky. I gave you the job. Uh, I'm a benevolent leader. You do what I say. So they they. They, they hold on to this money. They hate giving it to uh, paying taxes. They, they hate the notion of the collective good. And yet, and yet someone like Elizabeth Holmes comes to their door and starts talking BS, starts spinning them, and they're willing to throw tens of millions of dollars. To, all of a sudden, open it up, throw it out. Yeah, I can make more money. <laughs> Make more money. But, but the thing is, like, I, I, I just always wonder, how do these people do this? Like, I'm like, if I did that, nobody would give me money. I'm just, we have to come up with some. Well, you're not a psychopath. Like, that's your problem. Yeah, no, that's, you're you're that, not a psychopath. And by the way, I just, well, a, you mentioned Walgreens. In my opinion, I don't know, it's been a while since you saw this show. By far, my favorite episode, the most revealing episode in that eight-part series, I think it was eight parts, was the one that was called Old White Men. And it told the story of how the three representatives from Walgreens meeting with uh, the actress playing by Elizabeth Holmes' character, they were totally manipulated by her brilliantly. I got to give her credit. She s- suckered them in uh, into investing uh, without doing any due diligence as to whether her mach- her machines worked. Even if she had a machine, remember they were saying, we must see the laboratories. They never saw the laboratories. And she suckered them into investing. I'm like, Wow. Walgreens, you got totally taken. You got mopped, dude. And you're right. I mean, how they could allow that. You're right. It's how they could allow themselves to be taken in by that con woman. You know, I I guess I don't know what to say, uh, Romani. Capitalism, I'm not a fan of capitalism. You know, I know we live in a capitalist society, but it's got its problems. Let's just put it. Uh, I just I just think we live in a world with a lot of smoke and mirrors. And if you're willing to buy into it, you will buy into it. And and I've seen it. And I think I have a pretty good bullshit detector, but I'm sure sometimes people can fool me, too. Right. So. Yeah, but they're. No, no, I know what you're saying. I went through this, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, No. And uh, (laughs) she took it to an extreme. Yeah. but you're absolutely right. She they did a great job, the actress, with the lowering the voice. Like when she wanted to yeah. be like, tough and macho, she talked like this. And then all of a sudden, when she wanted to be <laughs> with the black turtlenecks. Yeah, the, the black, black turtlenecks. Jobs. By the way, I urge everybody, uh, I'm going to send this to you, Ron, if I haven't already. Uh, it's ancient. I send it to people all, all the time. Uh, the great comic, Bill Burr, who is controversial in his own right, uh, he did a, a takedown of Steve Jobs that. It's. I think it's seven years old. That's. I think is still worth watching. Uh, and uh, I think about his takedown of Steve Jobs, the worship of Steve Jobs, uh, and <laughs> very similar. A lot of parallels with Elizabeth Holmes. Um, all right, Romana, uh, we've run out of time today. Thank you so much. Uh, keep up the good work. Always a blast talking to you. Thank you. All right, that's great, Romana. Saying I'm Ben Drowski. Take care, everybody. 